Listeners, we want to tell you about a Reformed Baptist publishing company, Free Grace Press. Free Grace Press is firmly committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ and biblical truth as expressed by the historic Reformed confessions, such as the 1689 London Baptist Confession. They seek to propagate books and tracts that are spiritually inspirational, doctrinally educational, and practically helpful for the Church of God. We want to encourage you to support this ministry by purchasing their products. So you can learn more about them at freegracepress.com. Again, that is Free Grace Press. The Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Now, let's get started. In this week's Best of the Covenant podcast episode, we run it back to a recording with Pastor Jake Stone as he gives us an excellent biography on William Carey. Yesterday on social media, Jake Stone posted this. On this day in 1800, William Carey baptized Krishna Paul, his first convert in India, after laboring for seven years. Let us run with endurance, knowing our labor is not in vain. As I mentioned, Jimmy and I really enjoyed this recording with Jake as he gives us an overview of the life of William Carey. So we hope and pray that you are blessed by this conversation. So Jake, I'm going to start us off with the first question. Can you give us an overview of William Carey's life? Well, it's great to be back with y'all once again. And when I think about William Carey and how could I describe his life in just a few words, a summary statement would be found in something that Carey told his nephew Eustace. He told Eustace that he did not possess any genius, but that he could plot. Carey said, I am a plotter. It is true. That statement captures the life and ministry of William Carey. He was a man who persevered and endured through much hardship and difficulty due to his commitment to the Lord. Carey was born on August the 17th, 1761 in the Northamptonshire area of England. We would definitely say that he was born into humble conditions. Um, At the age of eight, he was apprenticed to be a shoemaker. And it would be in that role during his apprenticeship that he would meet someone else that was a fellow apprentice that God would use to sow seeds of the gospel in the life of William Carey. And that was a man named John War. Carey was born into an Anglican household. Uh, Carey went through the, what we would say, typical stage of of a teenager uh, in his context, more concerned with the things of the world and giving thought to his soul. And War would bring forth the testimony and witness of the gospel to Carey, but but Carey ignored him for a period, but he would be brought under conviction, and the work of the gospel would transform William Carey's heart. Carey would write, thinking back to that time when the gospel became real to him, that he said what took place in his heart was his understanding, quote, to depend on a crucified Savior for pardon and salvation, and to seek a system of doctrines in the word of God. Now, John Moore was a very influential man in the life of Carey, not just in that he brought Carey the tidings of the gospel, but he would also invite Carey to attend a dissenter's meeting house service. So this is a church service not sanctioned uh, by the Church of England or the Anglican community. And so Carey would attend, and it would be from that experience of hearing the preaching that day by a dissenter, that Carey was convinced that he needed to leave the Anglican church. Over a period of time, Carey later became acquainted with a man who had become a lifelong friend named John Ryland Jr. John Ryland Jr.'s father, John Ryland Sr., was a very influential, particular Baptist minister and pastor. And his son and Carey became friends and through conversations, Carey was convinced that he needed to be baptized, fully immersed as a believer. So he requested that baptism of the church where 
John Ryland Sr. was serving, and uh, the father delegated the responsibility to his son, John Ryland Jr., who baptized Carey in 1783. Neither one of those men would have any idea just how much God would use them together, and especially the life that Carey would lead in bringing the gospel to India. In, eight, in 1785, Carey moves to Moulton and opens a school. He would juggle usually two, three, sometimes four different jobs to try to provide for his family. And it was there in Moulton that he became, it became somebody who would preach somewhat. He was given opportunities in the Baptist church. And that would lead to, in 1787, him becoming an ordained minister of that church. Two years later, in 1789, he was called to pastor Harvey Lane Church in Leicester. And we'll talk about this in a little bit later. I'd like to read something about what took place in that church. But they actually dissolved the church in 1790 and kind of reformed it and re reconstituted it with Carey being formally ordained pastor there in 1791. His great work, uh, The Inquiry, is published in 1792, which, followed, which was followed by the sermon that he would preach at the Northamptonshire Association from Isaiah 54-2-3, where he would say, attempt great things and expect great things. And still in 1792, which was a really climactic year that would see the particular Baptist Missionary Society formed. And it was that society that would send off William Carey the next year to India. In 1793, June of that year, he and his family left, and he would never see England again. They arrived in India in November of 1793. Here he would be joined in 1799 by William Ward and Joshua Marshman. Uh, his first convert and baptism, though, did not occur until 1800. So think about the years that pass before we would say there was really any kind of visible, tangible fruit of his ministry. But they did come with the conversion of a man named Krishna Powell. And um, William Ward, his co-worker, wrote this in his diary when Krishna Powell was baptized. He said, quote, thus the door of faith is open to the Gentiles. Who shall shut it? The chain of the caste is broken. Who shall mend it? And of course, in India, the, the caste system was obviously so dominant in the culture that Carey and his companions would encounter people who said they were interested or maybe even believed in the Christian faith, but they were not willing uh, to submit to the ordinance of baptism and really reject that whole caste system. And, and Carey and the missionaries rightfully said, if you have truly believed in the gospel, then you're going to be willing to forsake a system that, that was very much, you know, uh, built upon prejudice and bigotry and on class and so forth. And so um, Krishna Powell declared that no longer would he be bound by the caste system. And so it's amazing to me to think about that from that moment, as Ward says, the door opened that by 1812, there were 300 converts. And by 1838, four years after Kerry had died, it was estimated that between 2,500 and 3,000 had come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so that's why Kerry said that he can plod, he could plod, he could persevere. And what a testimony. In India, he served many roles, missionary, theologian, Bible translator, educational pioneer, and someone who did seek social reform in India. He would die on June 9th, 1834. And what's remarkable to me is that a little over a week later, after the death of one of the great giants of the particular Baptist, C.H. Spurgeon was born in England. So that's kind of a big picture summary I would give of William Carey's life. Well, thank you for giving us a biography over uh, William Carey. And uh, previously on the podcast, we've discussed another Baptist giant, Andrew Fuller. And uh, we want to ask you, what is the relationship between William Carey and Andrew Fuller, what kind of relationship did they have and what did these two men mean to one another and who were some other friends maybe of Carey that, uh, that Carey had that encouraged him in his ministry? I, th I think if you want to really understand the relationship between William Carey and Andrew Fuller, it is captured 
in Terry's response when he read the letter uh, that Fuller had died. Now, it took months. I've, I've read before, I think the estimate was about six months for letters to travel from England to India. So, I, you know, picture yourself, somebody that you would consider one of your dearest and closest friends that you were in regular correspondence with, as Fuller and Terry were, and just waiting, you know, for the next letter from Fuller and not knowing that he had passed away. And so he received a letter from John Ryland Jr. Um, letting him know that Andrew Fuller had died. Fuller died in 1815. And Carey responded on the news of his friend's passing this way, quote, I loved him. There was scarcely any other man in England to whom I could so completely lay open my heart. Now that tells you a lot about the deep friendship that existed between those two men. Andrew Fuller is often presented as the, the theologian behind this revival of evangelical Calvinism among the particular Baptists. And then William Carey is the missionary that went forth practically applying the theology of Fuller. Uh, the two men were, were very, very close. They stayed in regular contact with each other. Um, Fuller becomes the, the first missionary, uh, secretary of the Missionary Society. So he is traveling extensively to, to raise funds. And it's not just Kerry who's there in India. There were others, but primarily, you know, because of the friendship with Kerry, Fuller was driven. Uh, others like Ryland Jr. were very concerned about Fuller's own health, that he was pushing himself uh, too hard in these responsibilities. But that really becomes the, 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 the catalyst for this whole movement in many ways is, is their friendship. Um, but it's not just Fuller and Carey. Um, you know, as you ask what other friends, there, there was really a band of brothers here. Um, in his ordination service, when William Carey was ordained, Fuller was present for that, as well as John Ryland Jr. and another pastor, John Sutcliffe. Sutcliffe was a particular Baptist pastor in Olney, and he had become a friend of John Newton's. Uh, Samuel Pierce is another close friend and brother to Carey that Carey would correspond with regularly. Pierce yearned to go to India himself. He wanted to join with Carey uh, and go and even began trying to learn the language. But his health was poor. Uh, and also, um, and it's fascinating, I know this is about William Carey, but kind of a side note, you know, the particular Baptist pastors and brethren um, prayed extensively and they told Samuel Pierce that they did not believe that it was the will of God for Pierce to go to India, that he was needed at home where he was serving and that he needed to remain there. And, you know, Pierce wrote to Carey and, and told him that, you know, what the brethren had decided and, and he abided by that. You know, that's, it takes a lot of grace and humility. If you have your mind set on something and you have brothers coming around you who know all of the circumstances, know everything and have prayed about this and come to you and say, you know, we, we, we are, we are joyed by, overjoyed by your burden to go to the nations but we believe that God wants you here serving. Um, but, but, but this shows here that, that these men really were a band of brothers. My, Dr. Michael Haken rightly notes their friendship centered around the gospel and, and their friendship is really what was used as, as a catalyst to launch these, this missions movement. Um, during one of their gatherings, they would get together and read together and pray together uh, John Ryland Jr. recorded in his diary one day, quote, Brethren Fuller, Sutcliffe, Carey, and I kept this day as a private fast in my study, read the epistles to Timothy and Titus, and each prayed twice, Carey with singular enlargement and pungency. Our chief was designed was to implore a revival of the power of godliness in our own souls, in our churches, and in the church at large. So in such a time where we're always feeling this, this tug and this pressure that we need to be, you know, creative, vision casting, in some sense of trying to discover something new, these men that God used greatly, what were they doing? Much what we would say is simple and ordinary here, coming together to fast, to pray, to read the word, to encourage one another. And God used it greatly. And, and I can't imagine how emotional of a scene it must have been when Carrie left. 
I mean, this was a strong brotherhood here. And, you know, he was going. And in that context and in this period of time, you know, it wasn't like that Carrie's going to pop on an airplane and be able to come back very quickly. Um, you know, I, I think that he knew when he left that he wasn't coming back. And so he said goodbye to these men and, and reading the accounts of, of what that last service was like and Fuller was there and just, you know, the emotions that must have been. Of course, the, the most famous statement about everything that took place, uh, Andrew Fuller records, that when Kerry determined to go to India, quote, Fuller wrote, we saw there was a gold mine in India, but it seemed almost as deep as the center of the earth. Who would venture down to explore it? I will venture to go down, Kerry said, but he stipulated that Fuller and his two other close friends, John Sutcliffe and John Ryland, must hold the ropes. And Fuller stated, we solemnly engaged to him to do, nor while we live, shall we desert him. And so Kerry goes to India, and it is Fuller and Sutcliffe and Ryland back home holding the ropes praying and raising funds for Kerry. Now, while Kerry gets the attention, I mean, he's the most well-known of all of these men. If he were alive, he would confess to us right now and say he was not by himself. This was not the William Kerry movement, that he was a part of a group of men who were bonded together for love for Christ and love for one another that God used. And each of them, had a role and all of those souls that were saved by god's grace in india god used each of these men as means and instruments for that work while he was there too um, he was encouraged and by two men that would form with carrie what we call the serampore trio and that was carrie william ward and, and joshua marshman uh, there was an anglican who would go there uh, in India in the late 18, uh, the first decade, the end of the first decade of the 1800s, I think it was 1806, he spent some months there observing these men, and he remarked about how their personalities complemented each other. There was no rivalry. There was not a sense of, of egotism about, you know, uh, this is Carey's or this is Ward's or this is Marshman's, um, that they really saw themselves as equals working together. It is interesting that Kerry once described the zeal of Joshua Marshman as the zeal of Luther, and that Kerry saw himself with his personality as more of the Erasmus of the group. Um, so while they were different men, uh, God used their talents and their abilities and their personalities together uh, to serve there in India. So William Kerry's life in England and India was really about the friendships that he had. And of course, uh, the friendship with Andrew Fuller uh, probably being the deepest of all of them. Yeah, thank you for sharing that with us, Jake. I mean, really out of that little band of brothers, it started a whole movement amongst yes. the English particular Baptists that would also eventually affect the the Baptist on the other side of the pond, because I believe it at Iram Judson actually met Fuller, uh, or not Fuller, Carey, prior to going to Burma. So, I mean, it, it really started a, a wide movement just from a small group of men at a, a prayer meeting. Yes. Um, another question that we have is, on the ground, what were some of the ministry responsibilities that Kerry had? What were some of the things that he did while he was in India? Well, well, Kerry is called the Wycliffe of the East, being an allusion to John Wycliffe, who is, you know, the pioneer, really the first as far as trying to get the, 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 the Bible into English, into the language of the common man. And he's called that because of his devotion that he had when he arrived there to get the Bible into the hands of those who lived in India, to get it into the language of the people. And of course, there's different dialects, so it was a, a tall order. But he had a passion. He had a passion for the Word of God, believing that it was the Word that changed lives. And so by his dedication to Bible translation work, uh, Kerry confessed a firm, robust commitment to the Word of God. Now, it's true that the work that he did in translating 
anybody that examines it and is being fair would say, you know, it wasn't the best uh, Bible translating work that's ever been done. I mean, Carrie had limitations. Uh, but with that in mind, we still should give much thanks for the heart and passion he had and the way that God used him um, in getting the word of God to the people in India that they could be able to read in their native tongue. And so that is something that Kerry was determined to do. Um, in 1797, he completed the, the New Testament in Bengali. And the first Bengali New Testament was printed by Serampore Press in 1801. Uh, then in 1808, Kerry published the, the New Testament in Sanskrit. And then in 1818, the whole Bible would be available and published in Sanskrit. What's remarkable is that in 1812, there was a fire that destroyed their printing house. He lost a lot of translation work, years of it. And what's his response? He started back over again. I mean, there was nothing, there's very much the, 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 the heart, not just of Wycliffe, but of William Tyndale and Kerry as well of, you know, yes, it was a trial, must've felt like a defeat, but not throwing in the towel, but getting back to work to get the Bible into the hands of the people. So Bible translation was, was a huge part of his work in India. But he was also active in preaching and evangelizing. And, and I want to say this about Kerry. Kerry did not become concerned and passionate about souls. Uh, that was not something that just happened when he got there to India. Now, that marked him when he was in England. Um, he, he was very much burdened for his sisters. He was always preaching and, and evangelizing to them. I can remember listening to Timothy George do a lecture one time about uh, Carey's evangelism with his sisters and about how they got tired of hearing from William Carey about the gospel. Uh, but God used him to see both of those sisters converted. And he maintained correspondence with him through his years there in India. There's also the story as Carey was serving as a teacher about how he put together wax paper to, to draw out a map of, of the world to teach his students geography, but also being filled with, with tears, being overcome about the spiritual darkness that existed. And of course, that all fueled his passion to go uh, to India. So, and then while he is there as well, he's obviously continuing in preaching the gospel and evangelizing. He's also very much engaged in educational work. He would help found the Serampore College in 1818, which still exists today. And he was a firm believer in training and teaching those who would go forth with the word of God, Carrie, like Fuller, and most of the particular Baptists, um, because uh, they were dissenters and not Anglicans in England. They didn't have the opportunities really for much in the way of formal education. Uh, they were limited, but that didn't stop them. Just because they were limited in their educational opportunities they didn't just say well, we'll just be ignorant and, and boast about it they did all that they could to read and learn and finally Kerry was very much involved in ending the gruesome uh, act of sati which was the practice of the hindus in india when, when a man would would, would die um, a husband passed that his widow would be burned um, to death um, after he passed that was the the custom uh, he was very involved in ending that practice, seeing that ended in India. And he was also very much involved in participating uh, with silent protests, for example, in abstaining from sugar uh, because of the slave trade in, in the British Empire and was, gave some financial support in trying to lead to the abolition movement there within the British uh, territories. So Kerry was very much involved in a lot of different ways, but I would say chiefly it always came back to the word of God getting into the hands of the people and proclaiming the word of God to those that he was around. Brother Jake, we are learning so much about William Carey in this episode already. But, uh, and you mentioned the great evangelist that he was and the band of brothers that were around him to make him the man that he was. But let's discuss the doctrines that motivated his evangelism. Can you talk about this with us? Sure. So. Obviously, one of the critiques that does come to those who uh, would confess the doctrines of grace and uh, claim to be Calvinist is that, you know, Calvinists do not do uh, missions. They don't engage in evangelism. 
And it is true that there had been a, a sense of hyper-Calvinism that had infected uh, a large portion of the particular Baptist in, in Britain. But William Carey was a particular Baptist. So that means William Carey was a Calvinist. And, and sometimes people can say that, you know, uh, they'll downplay that fact. Uh, you know, well, well, was Carey really a Calvinist? Maybe he was an Arminian. Maybe he was something else. No, Kerry was a, a Calvinist. Kerry did not believe in the doctrines of grace, the power of the gospel, the sovereignty of grace. How do you explain him going to a place like India? Also, Kerry didn't believe in the exclusivity of Christ. If he did not believe that people must personally believe in Jesus Christ in order to know eternal life, if he didn't believe that, then why would he have went to India? Uh, in his journal, he recounts that when he arrived there in India that one of his early hosts was an English deist. So somebody who believes that, you know, God created the universe and then just walked away. And it's just up to us to kind of, you know, make this world what we make it. Uh, he called Kerry a bigot. He said that Kerry was a bigot, was prejudiced for preaching Christ alone. So we hear that sometimes today, too. That's not new. That, that existed in Kerry's day as well. Those truths motivated Kerry. Evangelical Calvinism was the staple of the men who formed the particular Baptist Missionary Society. It was later shortened to Baptist Missionary Society, but the first name was the particular Baptist Missionary Society. These were men who all confessed uh, the doctrines of grace. And we know that that's what William Carey believed because we can, you know, go to um, his writings that we have, his, his journal, the things that he said. But we also can see it in what they drew up in 1805, the Serampore Agreement that kind of provided the principles that would guide their mission work over there in India. And part of that, the opening of that agreement reads this way, quote, we are sure that only those who are ordained to eternal life will believe and that God alone can add to the church, such shall be saved. Nevertheless, we cannot but observe with admiration, admiration that Paul, the great champion for the glorious doctrines of free and sovereign grace, was the most conspicuous for his personal zeal in the work of persuading men to be reconciled to God. Uh, so there, there we are. There, there is exactly what those men believed them. that's the theology that they were um, practicing and believing that carried them out in India. I mentioned earlier about the church that Kerry served at that kind of they dissolved it and then reconstituted it in Leicester. And they adopted what was known as the Leicester Covenant that kind of set forth the church's beliefs and how they would govern themselves. And in the, the first paragraph of that, when they're laying out what they believe, it reads in part, we believe that all things were fully known to God from the foundation of the world, that he from eternity chose his people in Christ to salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth. And it continues going forth, expounding upon what we would call the, the doctrines of grace. Um, C.H. Spurgeon. Uh, wrote a testimony uh, to Carey. And, and Spurgeon said this about Carey, quote, Carey was the living model of Jonathan Edwards' theology, or rather of pure Christianity. He was not a the his was not a theology which left out the backbone and strength of religion, not a theology, on the other hand, all bones and skeleton, a lifeless thing without a soul. His theology was full-orbed Calvinism. And then Spurgeon said, I admire Carey for being a Baptist. He had none of the false charity which might prompt some to conceal their belief for fear of offending others. But at the same time, he was a man who loved all who loved the Lord Jesus Christ. So Carey did have a love and had friendships with those people who were not Baptists. But he never apologized for his Baptist convictions, and he certainly didn't apologize uh, for his Calvinistic foundations either. Um, Dr. Michael Haken, in the book that he wrote on William Carey, uh, 
spend some time about those who have downplayed uh, Kerry's Calvinism. Uh, he writes, quote, if one fails to refer to the doctrinal convictions of William Carey as that which made him, we fail to read Carey's life correctly. To put it plainly, without understanding Carey's consistent delight in Calvinism throughout his life, we cannot understand the man, his motivation, or eventually the shape of his mission. And, and one final note on this, on his theology, it is seen in what he took with him in his journeys to India. Uh, there was an Anglican named Thomas Scott who wrote a book entitled The History of the Synod of Dort, uh, where the responses are made to the Remonstrants or the Arminian party and what forms what we know now as Tulip. Carey took that book with him. And when one of his letters back to John Ryland Jr. said, I want you to make sure to let Scott know uh, how valuable his book has been to me. Uh, Carey was reading the, the sermons of, of Edwards. Um, he, he comments about those in his journal, also different Puritan sermons that he read during his travels as well. And, and so that there's no doubt it is true. We do not have much in the way of theological treatises from William Carey. Um, but I would just tell somebody, just go see what Andrew Fuller wrote. And you're going to know uh, where William Carey stood. And his theology was not detached uh, from his missionary work. It fueled his missionary work. Thank you for that. Um why is William Carey known as the father of modern missions? I think that there's a the reason that Carey is called that is because probably it's not that Carey was the first person who ever engaged in any type of uh, missional endeavor and certainly was not the first um Calvinist or reformed person to do so. Um, but I think because of being from, from England, the period of time, and really everything that came out of that, because what William Carey did in India, as you alluded to a moment ago, and I'll comment on here, uh, impacted missions in America. So I think that's probably why Carey is presented as and known as the father of modern missions. I don't think that's hyperbole or a stretch. Um, Carey only wrote one book. That's really what we would say was, you know, a book published that is read by people today. And that is, I referred to it earlier as the inquiry. The full title is an inquiry into the obligations of Christians to use means for the conversion of the heathens, uh, falling in line with a lot of the, the style of that day of almost paragraph for the book title. But it's remarkable what Kerry did in that book. Um, he goes through the mandate that's found in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, and says, look, this great commission was not just binding upon the apostles. Um, it's binding for all Christians and all the people of God since. And, and in that book, Carrie then lays out and, and goes in detail about that text. Uh, history, he gives a mini history of missions. He talks about uh, men like Justin Martyr, Arrhenius, Tertullian. He speaks about Patrick going to Ireland. He talks about uh, Wycliffe. Uh, he speaks about uh, John Elliott, who was in New England. Uh, he speaks about David Brainerd, um, who was in New England as well, ministering among the Native Americans, the Moravians, uh, and, and just so forth. And then he goes through, it's amazing for the time that he spent, um, that he goes through the different geographic locations in the world population, the language, and what was the, the main religious beliefs of those areas, which is just, you know, fascinating. This is not somebody who was using, he didn't have Wikipedia, um, you know, the internet and Google to do all of this. And, um, but Timothy George rightly notes that, that for Kerry, this was not just statistics. George wrote, they were persons, eternal souls destined to live forever in the bliss of heaven or the darkness of hell. Uh, so Kerry does this work, the book, it's published. There had already been the prayer movement among the particular Baptists that started in 1784 that was at first really about stirring up revival among their own denomination and churches in England. And men like Fuller and Sutcliffe and Ryland and Kerry were a part of that. But then it 
you know, started branching out into this, we need to reach the ends of the earth. And of course, the, the famous story that comes out is that the group of ministers gathers together and they said, let's, what are we going to talk about? And, you know, Carrie speaks up and says, we need to talk about getting the gospel to the, to the heathens. And it was John Ryland Jr.'s father, John Ryland Sr., who is reported to say, and I'm just summarizing here, you know, sit down, young man, you're an enthusiast. And when God wants to convert the heathens, uh, he'll do it his way and he doesn't need your help. Now, Ryland Jr. says his dad didn't say that. Uh, I'm sure he, you know, obviously felt some affection for his father and wanted to defend him. Others who were present and knew the circumstances said that he did. I do believe, though, it's wrong to imply that that was uh, hyper-Calvinism from Ryland Sr. That's usually what that's attributed to. And there was hyper-Calvinism among the particular Baptists during that time, no doubt about it. But there are also many, like Ryland Sr., who believe that the Great Commission would not take place again unless there was a, a type of another Pentecost outpouring with the ability to go speak foreign languages in a miraculous way. That's really the, and it was kind of an eschatological position that Ryland Sr. held that caused him to say that. I don't think there's any proof that it was hyper-Calvinism. Um, but Kerry was an enthusiast. That didn't stop him. Um, he is constantly imploring Fuller and others that they, they need to do something. And then he preaches that sermon from Isaiah 54, 2 through 3. Let us expect great things was the first division. Let us attempt great things was the second division. It is true that it has kind of been embellished over time to where it's expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. We don't have much detail about the sermon, really, that he preached. Unfortunately, it would be wonderful to have that um, present. And he poured himself into that uh, sermon. And, and it reportedly goes that, you know, this is an association meeting. And he preaches that sermon and everybody's moved. But then, you know, the moderator gets up there to, you know, dismiss. And, and Fuller tugs on Fuller's arm and says, it, is nothing going to happen? Are we not going to do anything? Um, so finally, after some persuading and prayer and time and meetings, they, they did do something. They gathered together and they formed what we know as the particular Baptist Missionary Society. And I think it's one of the most amazing stories uh, in church history because what I love about the story of William Carey, Andrew Fuller, John Sutcliffe, John Ryland Jr., Samuel Pierce, and all of these men, is to be honest with you, is that they were nobodies, really. They were nobodies. Um, there's nothing in them that would cause us to say, wow, these are going to be the people that God really uses to change the world. Um, because they weren't. Now, even one of their own, Samuel Pierce, said, um, the men who were gathered in this parlor, so they met in a lady named Martha Wallace, who was a longtime member of the church there in Kettering where Andrew Fuller served. So there's 11 pastors and one deacon from Fuller's church gathered in her parlor. Uh, Michael Haken describes it as it measured 12 feet by 10, ample space for three or four men to sit and stretch out their legs, but quite a tight squeeze for 14 total in there. But yet there they were. And Samuel Pierce, who was one of those there, recorded that he said those who were squeezed in there, quote, were men of no fame and of the scantiest salary. Hence, they were poor Baptist preachers who were really nobodies from nowhere. And yet, God used them. God used them to launch what we would consider the modern missions movement. They took up their first collection. Uh, it was in a snuff box belonging to Fuller. The amount equaled 13 pounds, two shillings, and a sixpence. Uh, the, the average worker, their annual salary was 25 pounds. So this is not exactly a lot of money to launch the gospel into India, but it was the starting point. And as Jimmy alluded to earlier, the work that K. 
Terry did would reach to America. It motivated Luther Rice and Adoniram Judson uh, to leave America and, and go and sail. They all left uh, as Cato Baptist Congregationalists when they arrived to India. Uh, they were convinced Credo Baptists by reading the scriptures. They had become Baptists. And uh, Judson and Rice were baptized there in India. And Terry encouraged Rice to go back uh, to raise funds in what would become eventually the Triennial Convention in America. Um, all of that. And I would say, and then even in an indirect way, I think we can trace in the launching of the Southern Baptist Convention in 1845. All of that stems from those men tightly squeezed into that parlor, gathered together for the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And how God uses ordinary, simple things to confound the wisdom of the world. We've been talking about William Carey, and uh, you mentioned in his biography some of the difficulties that he went through during his life. Let's flush that out a little more. What hardships and controversies did Carey endure throughout his ministry and life? He definitely endured a lot of personal hardships. Um, his first child, his daughter Anne, died when she was just two. And they were still in England at that time. His son, Peter, died at the age of five uh, in India. They had only been in India about a year or so. He buried, he was, he was married three times. He buried his first two wives, Dorothy and Charlotte, in India. Uh, his son, Felix, died in 1822. Uh, so, you know, imagine the, the children and, and, and spouses, you know, all of that, you know, burying them uh, in, in your life, that, that's a lot. Um, and then also Carrie received news all during his time in India about all of the dear men that were so close to his heart passing away, you know, starting with, with Fuller, and, you know, and then Ryland Jr. in Sutcliffe, and, and before that, Pierce. Um, so just imagine that the people that are closest to you, not just family, but friends, um, you know, passing away but, but but also the years that pass that Carrie had no what we would say you know church family there in India you know, it's reported that every Lord's Day that he would awake and would look facing back towards England and think about his congregation you know there that he had left praying for them thinking about them longing for them and as I said, he was there years before the first convert, so a long time. Um, yes, he did have, you know, Ward and Marshman, um, but still just definitely that feeling of isolation and, and losing so many uh, that were close to him. And part of the problems that Kerry then faced because of the dear brothers dying that he was close to is just like Exodus says, you know, there arose a Pharaoh in Egypt who did not know Joseph. Well, there arose pastors and men in the Baptist circles there in England who didn't personally know William Carey. And so Carey began to have a lot of tension and difficulties with the missionary society back home. Uh, as men came into leadership positions who didn't know him, um, they really wanted to start micromanaging more what Carey and the mission were doing. And it frustrated Carey. Uh, he didn't he didn't appreciate how he felt like they were not trusting him, that they were not being good stewards of the funds being raised and sent. And it really culminated that in 1827, the relationship between the Baptist Missionary Society in, in London and the Serampore Mission dissolved. Um, and, and that was a great heartache uh, for Kerry to see that relationship in. Theologically, you know, Carey is a part of that movement away from hyper-Calvinism that marked a particular Baptist. And I would say just, you know, leaving everything that you know to go and do this, uh, what a challenge. Um, you know, and also a lot of people were very skeptical. As, you know, Pierce said it was the nobodies. There were not a lot of the more prominent pastors in the particular Baptist circles, especially in London, were not very 
encouraging or kind to what these men were doing. Most of them thought it was, you know, a fool's dream and it would end in disaster. Of course, God worked otherwise. And then, you know, what he did in India, um, you know, his seeking to abolish the practice of sati there in India uh, was not well received, not just from those there, but from, you know, the English authorities. Um, they were there as a, as a colonial power to have territory and resources from India and to keep the peace. They didn't like people like Kerry being agitators and causing some issues. And it wasn't easy for Kerry in India. You know, sometimes people can think that we're here in the 1800s by now. Maybe, you know, life was a lot more smooth for somebody like Kerry, who's a dissenter. He's not an Anglican. But he once remarked in his journal that, you know, the Catholics were given more freedom from the English authorities than he was. And he was a Protestant. Um, but because he was a dissenter, because he was a Baptist, you know, he, he faced a lot more difficulties in the work that he was trying to do, whether it was public gatherings or publishing. Um, so this was not some, you know, was not some smooth sailing that Kerry had there in India during that time. So personally, theologically, and then I would say culturally, uh, there was a lot of difficulties and challenges he faced. You had mentioned that he didn't have much support from London. One pastor that did support him, I believe you can correct me if I was wrong. I'm wrong, but was Abraham Booth, who we talked about formally? He, I believe, he was a supporter of the missions and did correspond with Carrie. Yes, correct? Yes, yes. Uh, Booth was was not able to attend that meeting when they organized. He, he was away um, on other ministerial business, but he was a supporter financially and, and other ways. Yes, so he was one of the few London pastors who would have that would have been noteworthy who did give support uh, to carry to Fuller and to the society. Absolutely. And another thing you had mentioned, um, Carrie had buried two wives while he was in India. Um, Carrie's first marriage, at least from my reading of it was, was not a very happy one from the start when they got into India. What is your take on that first marriage? And, and can you explain a little bit about what happened? Yes, I would say probably the most controversial part of William Carey's life was his first marriage, uh, which was to Dorothy. And she didn't want to go originally to, to India. And eventually, um, one of the other men that was involved early when Kerry went to India was a man named John Thomas. There's a lot that could be said about, about him and, and kind of some of his actions, but he eventually did convince Kerry's wife that she should go with Kerry. Um, her condition was, is that her sister, um, Catherine had to be able to go with them. So that there would be somebody that she would have, for support. Um, and, and I want to cite a few things that Michael Haken says in the book that he wrote on William Carey. Um, he writes, you know, Dorothy's reluctance to support her husband has often been criticized, but it bears remembering that if she had ever traveled beyond her native Northamptonshire, it would only have been once or twice. Moreover, she had a very young family and was pregnant with a fourth child when they sailed to India. On the day she did agree to go, she spent time in prayer about the decision and was thus led to go with her husband. Um, she does, she is often portrayed, I think, in, in an overtly negative fashion that I think, and I would agree with Haken, that's unfair a lot of the time. Um, she did go with deep misgivings. You have to remember, she's already, you know, she's already buried one child. Um, and when they arrived there, from, from all accounts, she, she really began to suffer a lot of mental breakdowns. And that really uh, culminated when the son, Peter, that I mentioned earlier, died. Uh, and, and, in that, and in that situation, because of the cultural practices of the Hindus and the Muslims that were there, um, they didn't have people who were really there to, to help as far as making coffins serving as grave diggers, pallbearers. I mean, it was an ordeal. Uh, Carrie wrote to Pierce in a letter about everything that they finally were able to get four Muslims to dig a grave 
But after that, she, she just really became what we would say, you know, mentally delusional. She, she accused Carrie of being an unrepentant adulterer. Uh, she accused him publicly in, 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 in quite vile language, and she made two attempts to kill him. Um, William Ward stated in his diary in June of 1800, quote, Mrs. Carey is stark mad. Um, but you need to, I think people need to remember, though, you know, who she was. What was her background? She is from rural England. She was illiterate. She was not, you know, trained educationally and all of that. This is a lot asking of her. And the, the question always that is posed is should Carrie have gone to India because of her reluctance? And, and I, I think there is a case to be made um, for all the work that God used. And God uses us despite our, our failures and mistakes and sins. I don't think it was wise for him to go with his wife being that reluctant to. Um, his first priority was as a husband, not as a missionary. And, and I do think in that sense, we need to be, you know, with all figures in church history, we need to be open and honest about them, their successes and also their failures. And, and I do think now Carrie did care for her. Um, I will say that for him, he was encouraged to put her in, in, a, in an institution and the institutions in England were not nice places. One in India would have been even worse condition-wise. And Kerry refused to do that. He, he took care of her. Um, it, you know, it's reported that she'd be in one room, you know, confined and, and screaming. And he was in the other room working on, you know, Bible translations. Cannot imagine that environment, that scenario. Uh, but he did care for her until she passed away in 1807. But, but I would say that there is a lesson there to be learned that um, we may have a lot of strong impulses and, and impressions about ministry, but, but the family, the, the wife and children that God has given to a man, that's the priority first. And he, that's his primary responsibility, and he needs to remember that. Uh, what are some applications that we can draw from the life of William Carey? I mean, we've learned so much about this giant today. What can we apply to our lives based upon his ministry? I think that the first thing is God uses ordinary people in extraordinary ways. I think the testimony of, of many people in church history, of course, in the scriptures, is that, uh, and I think it's very evident in, in the life of William Carey, just how much God used him uh, not only in England, but in India, and then later in America and, and throughout the world. Uh, just a cobbler, just a plotter. But it's in that plotting that there's a beauty. I think sometimes we're always looking for the grand, you know, fire come down from heaven and consume the altar events in, in life and ministry. Uh, and God sometimes blesses us to have, you know, moments like that. But that's that's not the norm. Those are the exception. The norm is what Kerry said towards the end of his life. I can plot. And I think that we need to be men and, and women who persevere and endure and run the race well. I think also it's a testimony that we don't do that by ourselves, that we need brothers and sisters alongside us, walking with us and caring for us. We all need to have somebody like Carrie had in Fuller that we can bear our souls to, that we can be open with and, and share the burdens and the needs that we have. Uh, and we need to be people like that, too. Um, Michael Haken makes the argument uh, in, in several works of his that I would highly commend that we are missing in the 21st century the importance of gospel friendship. Um, and that doesn't happen overnight, and that requires sacrificial love and service on both sides. And I think those men in that particular Baptist band of Terry Fuller, Sutcliffe, Ryland, Pierce, and others our testimony of how God uses people for great changes, revivals, reformations, awakenings, and so forth. And to remember ultimately what fueled William Carey was Jesus Christ. Carey wrote towards the end of his life, one of his last letters, he said, the atoning sacrifice made by our Lord on the cross is the ground of my hope of acceptance, pardon, justification, 
and endless glory. And that's ultimately where, what our ground of hope is. It is who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. And he is enough to satisfy the soul. And I think any time that we find ourselves uh, discouraged, Carrie, if you read Carrie's journals, he had a lot of dark moments of spiritual discouragement, wondering if he was even saved. I think he was a little bit too introspective, like, you know, some Puritans could be. Uh, but ultimately, what lifted his heart was remembering who his Savior was, what his Savior had done, and who he was by virtue of being in union with Christ. Jake, um, thank you so much for the answers that you have already given us. The final question we want to ask is, what resources would you recommend if we or our listeners want to learn more about William Carey? Okay. First book that I want to recommend has a chapter on William Carey, but it's not just on Carey, but I would say it's the best introduction to learning about several of these men that we've, we've named today in this um, particular Baptist movement towards the end of the 18th century and the early 19th century. Uh, it is entitled Ardent Love for Jesus, Learning from the 18th Century Baptist Revival by Michael Haken. So it's going to introduce you to, to Fuller, to Pierce, Sutcliffe, to Ryland, uh, to Carey, and, and some of the context of what happened. I highly encourage it as just a good primer and introductory resource uh, to this movement. Uh, then to get a little more specific about Carey, um, there, there would be three uh, biographical books that I would recommend. The first one, and what's considered kind of the gold standard, was written by his great-grandson, um, S. Pierce Carey, the full name being Samuel Pierce Carey. Yes, actually, the two families um, uh, intermarried, and so that's why his great-grandson, who is a Carey, is named Samuel Pierce. That's an interesting story in itself, um, the relationship between the Pierce and Carey families. But he wrote the biography and just entitled William Carey. Um, that is considered the, the best biography of Carey that you're going to find. Um, so I highly recommend it. Uh, then a newer book, uh, well, newer biography than that, um, is Timothy George. Wrote a book entitled Faithful Witness, The Life and Mission of William Carey. Uh, and finally, the, the newest book that has been published on William Carey uh, is a part of Steve Lawson and the Reformation Trust out of Ligonier Ministries. Their series, A Long Line of Godly Men, written by Michael Haken as well, is the Missionary Fellowship of William Carey. Uh, you can easily read it in one setting, and it will just really encourage you. Um, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I knew a good friend of mine who is at Southern Seminary, Zach Williams, a student of, of Dr. Haken's, and Dr. Haken let him see uh, early what the cover design for the book, um, the picture of Carrie and everything. So I was able to see that early last year and just was counting down until uh, the book was released. And the, the book lives up to the beautiful artwork, I promise you, on the front. And finally, if you want to get a taste of Carrie, uh, read an inquiry. You can go, you can go online and read that for free. Um, it's available several different places. If you just Google an inquiry by William Carey, it's going to come up somewhere that you can read that. So that'll give you a taste for uh, his mindset and his thinking. But then also, if you want to get to know a little bit about him as far as what he was thinking and going through during his, his travels, uh, you can pick up the journal and selected letters of William Carey um, that is edited by Terry Carter. Um, that was compiled in the early 2000s, actually the year 2000, by Smythe and Helwes Publishing uh, out of Mercer University there in Georgia. So it gives it its primary source and gives you an opportunity to actually read and see what Kerry was thinking and going through. So those would be some resources that I would highly recommend people uh, purchase, invest in, and, and read to know more about William Kerry his life, his theology, and those who were a part of his journey. For additional content, check out our blog ministry at covenantconfessions.com. 
Also, keep up with our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Next, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Lastly, thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.